Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the distinctive things that mark American money is that on all their coins and all their bills, there are four words. In God we trust. These words first appeared on American coins near the end of America's Civil War. And in the 1950s, in a conscious pushback against communism, a law was passed that required those words, in God we trust, also to be put on, on American bills. And so this phrase is, is a distinctive mark of American money. But it, it begs the question in a certain sense, how, how many people who use that money, how many Americans really trust in God? And even those that do those that do have faith in God, how, how, how many of them use that money without appreciating, without noticing, without really thinking about those, those four words? In God we trust. Sometimes people, even, even Christian people, can do the same thing with the Christian faith. You see, one of the distinctive things about the Christian faith is that it is a faith, it is a, it is a trust in the triune God. To put it another way, one of the distinctive marks of the Christian faith is not merely the phrase, in God we trust, but in God triune we trust. The Christian faith, unlike any other faith, is a faith in a God who is triune, one God who exists in three persons. But the question is, how much do we really appreciate that? How, how much does it really impact our lives? How, how often do we really think about it? Do we really live actively trusting in the triune God? For many, if not, if not all of us, really all of us, I think, is the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine that's hard to understand, harder to explain, and perhaps hardest of all to grasp its relevance to our daily lives. And so the temptation with that is, is, is either to ignore it or, or to avoid it or simply to, to minimize it. But beloved, when we ignore or avoid or minimize the doctrine of the Trinity, when we do not actively trust in the triune God, we are neither honoring God nor fully enjoying the comfort that he offers us in the gospel. Put it another way, when we're not actively trusting in the triune God, we're robbing God of his honor and we're robbing ourselves of his comfort. And that's why it's important, even though we, we cannot fully understand it, it's important to listen to what God says in his word about him being triune, about him being three persons in one God. And that's the focus of this evening's sermon as we turn again to our series on the biblical teaching summarized for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. Two weeks ago, we considered the Bible's teaching on true saving faith and, and we ended by noting that the Apostles' Creed is a faithful summary, that the creed that we just recited is a faithful summary of the gospel of salvation. It declares what the church and by extension what every true believer, what every true Christian believes. And now in Lord's Day 8, the focus is on the biblical doctrine 
of the Trinity, which, which forms the basic structure of the Apostles' Creed. So with God's help, also in line with the passage we read, 1 Peter 1 and, and especially verse 2, we want to consider the doctrine of the Trinity under the theme, trusting, trusting in God triune. We'll have three thoughts. First of all, how absolutely foundational He is. Secondly, how clearly revealed He is. And thirdly, how graciously self-giving He is. In the first place, the triune God is absolutely foundational. He's, He's foundational really to everything. And including and especially also including faith and salvation. Question and answer 24 of the Catechism points this out by drawing our attention to the structure of the Creed, which was introduced in Lord's Day 7. Question 24 asks, how are these articles, the the articles of our undoubted, our, our Catholic, our timeless and universal Christian faith given in the Apostles' Creed, how are these articles divided? And the answer is that they are divided into three parts. First, the first is of God the Father and our creation, the second of God the Son and our redemption, and the third of God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Now, it's important to understand what this answer is not saying. It's not saying that only God the Father was involved in creation, and that only God the Son in our redemption, and that only God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. The Bible is clear, as as we will see, that all three persons are involved in creation as well as redemption and sanctification. But what the answer is pointing out on the basis of Scripture is the person in focus in each of these three areas of the Christian faith. That's how we need to understand that division. And so the main point to see from this answer from the division of our creed, is this. The triune God, His triune being, and His triune work is absolutely foundational to everything, including our faith and salvation. We see that revealed also in our text, in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. If you read the letter as a whole, it's very clear that Peter is writing here to comfort and encourage and instruct Christians who are suffering for their faith particularly those who have been scattered throughout various parts of what today is called the country of Turkey, north and west of Israel. But what's important to notice here is how he addresses them in verse 2. He addresses them as elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What is Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying? He's saying exactly what the division of the Apostles' Creed is saying. The triune God, both in his his being and in his work, is absolutely foundational. Foundational to everything, including our faith and salvation. Children, if you... If your parents have, your, have the Bible open, or if you have your Bible open to 1 Peter 1, verse 2, maybe you can tell me how many persons Peter mentions in that verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. He mentions God the Father, he mentions the Spirit, and he mentions Jesus Christ. How many persons is that? That's three, right? He doesn't mention any less, and he doesn't mention any more. And if you keep reading the chapter, uh, maybe you noticed it as we, we were reading, as he encourages the believers in their faith and in their walk with God and in their, in their walk of holiness, he keeps mentioning those same three persons. 
You can check yourself later, but I, I found at least two more times that he mentions the Father by name, and seven more times that he mentions Jesus Christ by name, and three more times that he mentions the Holy Spirit by name. Now, doesn't that fact alone, that these three persons are, are, are just are sprinkled throughout the, the, this chapter, doesn't that fact alone suggest that the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, that these three persons are essential as the one true God to the faith and salvation of believers? And doesn't it lead us to the conclusion that the triune God in His triune being is foundational to everything? And doesn't it show how important, how desperately we need, how desperately we need the triune God? You see, Peter doesn't just refer in general to the three persons of the Trinity in their being, in their existence. He doesn't just refer to to the triune God in his essence, in his being. But he he also, and he, he really primarily is here, is referring to the triune God in terms of his work. And that's what, that's what the division of the Apostles' Creed it does too, as we, we read in the first question. The, the Apostles' Creed speaks of God the Father as our creator in the work of creation. And that's confirmed in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, which tells us that all things are of the Father. And again, we, we know that both the Son and the Holy Spirit were also involved in creation. We know that because we, we, we read it in Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God was there. And we read in John 1 that... that the, Jesus, the Word made flesh, He was in the beginning with God, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And so even in our creation alone, we can see that the triune God is foundational. He's foundational to our existence and to the existence of everything. But the Father is the person in focus in creation. And Peter, as he addresses believers in our text, says that the Father is the person in focus also in election unto salvation. Your election, your being chosen for salvation is based, he says, to the people he's writing to, not on anything in you, but, but he says, according to the Father's foreknowledge, according to his sovereign predetermination in eternity. And the point he's making, beloved, is that, is that our election unto salvation, just as much as our creation, is a sovereign, gracious work. Grace alone. And it's a work especially of God the Father. Our redemption is the work especially of God the Son. We learned earlier in the catechism when we were looking at the reality and the greatness of our sin and misery, the magnitude of our, of our depravity, that God's justice needed to be satisfied. And only Jesus Christ, we learned in, in Lord's Day 6, the mediator who is not only a real righteous man, but also very God, only he could do that. And he did do that. He did it for all those whom the Father had chosen, all those whom the Father has given him. And how did he do it? How did he do it? He did it by shedding his blood, his own blood on the cross. And Peter refers to that. He refers to the sprinkling of of the blood of Jesus Christ here in verse 2. And then if you go further in the chapter, in verses 18 and 19, he reminds those who are Christians, the readers, that, that we were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold 
from our, from our vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The point is our redemption is especially the work of God the Son. He's the one who came and he paid the ransom price for all his people, all whom God has chosen, so that they might be his purchased possession. So our creation and our election is especially the work of God the Father. Our redemption is, is especially the work of God the Son. And our sanctification, our being set apart to God, is especially the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter says in our text, verse 2, of the people he's writing, he says of them, You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, our salvation, beloved, your salvation, my salvation, depends not only on the Father's election of us and not only on the Son's redemption of us, but also on the Spirit's sanctification of us, on His setting us apart to obedience and His applying the cleansing work of Christ's blood, both initially in regeneration when He causes us to be born again by His Word, so that we believe and obey the gospel and then throughout our life, throughout our life, so that we continue to believe and grow in obedience to God. The point to see here, beloved, is how foundational, how foundational all three persons are, how foundational the triune God is to everything, including especially our faith in salvation. If you are here, your being here, is only because of the triune God. Our existence is because He exists. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer here this evening, it's all because of this triune God. It's all because of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is completely and solely dependent on the triune God. How do we know that from our text? Well, look, what, look what, he, what Peter says at the end of our, our text. After he, he mentions all these things that these, we, we have through the triune God, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we're, we're sanctified through the Spirit, we have the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us. He then writes at, that end, at the end of that verse, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace and peace. It's what we don't have. What we don't have by nature. It all comes from God. It is based on the existence of the triune God and on His work, the work of all three persons and only these three persons. And that naturally, or maybe supernaturally, you could say, leads to Peter bursting out in praise to God in verse 3. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we see, congregation, do we see how foundational the triune God is? You know, we can come to a doctrine like this, come to a Lord's Day like this, a teaching, a teaching of Scripture, and it, it, we've grown up with it, and it maybe seems so basic. But do we live? Do we live realizing how foundational this God is. 
Do we live as if the triune God is foundational to everything and especially to our salvation? If we do, if we do, then won't we recognize, won't you recognize your desperate need of him, of all three persons? And if you do, then won't you, well, then you will. You will never, ever deny any person of the Trinity. Because when we deny one of them, when we deny one person of the Trinity congregation, we have none of them. John says in his epistle, this is one example, clear example, if we deny the Son, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Oh then, let us trust. If we, if we are living in light of God, the triune God being foundational for everything, also our salvation, let us, it should lead us to trust in Him alone. And to seek to grow in our trust in Him. Not to boast in ourselves. Not to look at ourselves and think of ourselves as the basis of our salvation in any way. But to look to Him alone. And to humbly praise like Peter. And glorify and rejoice in our God. Our triune God. From whom all blessings flow. But maybe you say, you hear all this and you say, yes, but how can we be sure? How can we be sure that God really is triune? I mean, there are three persons, you're right, there are three persons mentioned in our text, but, but how do we know they are one God? Well, that brings us to our second point. How clearly revealed the triune God is. The second question of Lord's Day 8 asks, since there is but one only divine essence, why do you speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the catechism's answer is this, because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one, only, true, and eternal God. In other words, we know that God is triune because, well, because the Bible tells us so. We know that God is triune because God says he is in his word. And it's it's important to stop and think Think about that for a moment. Think about the catechism's approach here, congregation. The catechism points us to the Word of God, to God's special revelation as the basis for our knowledge that God is triune. We confess God as triune in the Apostles' Creed every Lord's Day, not because the Christian church decided He was triune, but because God has revealed it. And He has revealed it only in His Word, only in the Bible. The Bible, not the church, nor our ability to understand or explain who God is, is our rule of faith because it is God's special and infallible revelation. The Christian submits to God's word as as the rule of faith because it is his own revelation. Does the catechism approach describe your approach to Scripture? Does that... Does does humble and total submission to God's word describe you? But maybe you say, wait wait a minute, I've never read the word triune. I've never read the word trinity anywhere in the Bible. And, And you're right, the Bible never uses those words. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that God isn't triune. What does the Bible say about God? Or maybe better said, what does God say about himself in his word? Well, he certainly clearly reveals that he is one God. That he is the only true and eternal God. 
Think of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And Jesus, in the New Testament, when Jesus came and lived, he, he, he repeated this confession himself in Mark 12, verse 29. But not just Jesus, also the apostles say the same thing. Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, declares, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So God is clear in his word. He is one God, and he is the only true and eternal God. But he also clearly reveals that as the one, only, true, and eternal God, he exists, he exists in three distinct persons. The Old Testament, I alluded to this when I, when I introduced Psalter 124, but the Old Testament hints at this several times. Already in Genesis 1 verse 2, we're introduced to the Spirit of God present in the beginning along with God. And when God makes man, we very clearly learn that there is more than one person in God. Because he doesn't say, let me make man. What does he say? Let us make man. Think too of some of the promises of the Messiah. Like Isaiah 7 verse 14, which tells us that his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And Isaiah 9 verse 6, which says the promised Messiah will be called the mighty God. So in the Old Testament, we see hints, hints of God's being three and one and one in three at different times. But God reveals himself as one God in three distinct persons most fully in the New Testament. The angel makes mention of three distinct persons in Luke 1 verse 35 when he announces to Mary. Remember when we, we studied that not that long ago. He comes to Mary and he tells her that by the power of the Holy Spirit she would conceive a son who would be called the Son of God. And then, and then you have Matthew 3 verse 17 when, when the Lord Jesus began his public ministry and he was baptized by John in the river Jordan. What happened as he came out of the river? The heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and there was a voice from heaven who said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So all three persons are found and I'm just mentioning only a few verses. I can't mention them all. But they're found all over the New Testament. Also in our text. And all three persons, all three persons are clearly revealed as one God. The Father is God. P Peter refers to him as God in our text. God the Father, he says. Jesus Christ is God. Excuse me, I think I'm missing a page here. Jesus Christ is God. He said in John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. And the Holy Spirit is God. In Acts 5, when Ananias, you know the story, children? When Ananias lied to Peter, he pretended, he pretended that the, the money he had gotten from selling his land was all the money that he was giving to the church. And he was actually holding back some of it. And the Lord revealed that to Peter. So Peter asked him, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, right? You remember him asking that question? And then you know what he says a few, a few a verse later? Still talking to Ananias, he says, you have not lied unto men, but unto God. So all three persons are one God. 
But even though all three persons are God, the one true and eternal God, they are all distinct persons. And this is where it becomes mind-boggling. But one of the clearest texts that show this is, is Matthew 28, 19, part of what we sometimes call the Great Commission. There Jesus tells his disciples to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in what? Baptizing them in the name. One name. Referring to the oneness of God. But in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here there are three distinct persons and yet they are one God. That's the Trinity. That's the triune God. Do you see with me, congregation, how absolutely right the catechism is when it says that God has revealed himself in his word, that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God? Well, I realize, I realize congregation, we went through a lot of texts, and it's a difficult doctrine. And we've only really skimmed the surface. And maybe you're wishing... You're wishing for an illustration, something to help, something to make sense of how three distinct persons can be one God. But here's the problem. There is no illustration for the Trinity. People have tried, but it always fails. There is no, simply no adequate way to explain the Trinity. We are simply called to believe it because God has revealed it. Maybe you've heard the story before. How a minister once told his congregation that in the evening he was going to explain the Trinity to them. And he went home and after lunch he went for a walk and he noticed one of his elders by the river. And what was the elder doing? He, was, he had a spoon and he was spooning water from the river out onto the, out onto the path. And so the minister thought, that's strange. And he, he came up to the elder and said, what are you doing? And, and so the elder told him, I'm... I'm emptying the river. I'm emptying the river. And the minister said, you can't do that. And the elder said, neither can you explain the Trinity. You see, congregation, the reality is, the reality is that this glorious doctrine of our glorious God is beyond our full understanding. That ought to humble us. That ought to humble us. That, ought, that calls us to bow before him in childlike fear and, and holy awe of him. One author I read wrote this. The real test of our grasp of the doctrine of the Trinity is not how much we understand the true God, but how much we worship him. The real test of our grasp of the doctrine of the Trinity is not how much we understand the true God, but how much we worship Him. Are you worshiping Him? How much? How much do you worship the triune God? How much do you worship and do you adore each of the three persons, not just the Father, but also the Son, and not just the Father and the Son, but also the Holy Spirit? How much... Are, are you worshiping all three persons, not as three gods, but as one, the one only true and eternal God? But maybe you say, how can I do that? How can I worship 
a God that I cannot understand, that I cannot know. And how can I trust in a God I do not know? In his, a being in his, who is one as well as three persons? Well, those are good questions. That brings us to our third and last point. The triune God is not only absolutely foundational and clearly revealed, he's also graciously self-giving. Now, we don't, the catechism doesn't specifically mention that or talk about that. But that's basically what the Bible-based teaching of Lord's Days 9 to 22 as it unfolds the, the riches, the un, something of the unsearchable riches of the gospel. That, that's what it will show us. That the triune God graciously gives himself in the gospel. Our text, 1 Peter 1 verse 2, tells us, as we saw earlier, how foundational the triune God is. But it also shows us how self-giving he is, doesn't it? That the Father would choose sinners to salvation out of his own sovereign grace. Sinners who had rejected him. Sinners who had rebelled against him. And that the Son would come and shed his own blood for them to cleanse them from their sins. And that the Spirit would come too to sanctify them, to set them apart and regenerate and renew them. Oh, how graciously self-giving the triune God is. And that's not even all of it. If you keep reading the chapter, you learn more of what the Father does. In verse two, we're, or verse 3, we're told that according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. Or he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And we know, we know how he does that because John 3 tells us our being born again is, is the work of the Spirit directly. So God the Father graciously gives his Spirit. He graciously gives himself so that sinners might be born again and believe on his Son. And what's more, in verse 5, we're told that we are kept by the power of God. Believers are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. In other words, God gives of himself for our protection and our preservation. And then again in verse 11 and 12, we're told that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, not only testified through the Old Testament prophets the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ, but also was sent down from heaven. Sent down from the Father and from the Son to call and to equip men for the preaching of the gospel and to accompany it with saving power. And then there's Christ Jesus. There's Christ Jesus by whose precious blood we are redeemed. We're told in verse 20 and 21 that he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. By who? By God the Father. It's implied. And was manifest or revealed in these last times for you. Again, by God the Father. And so it's by him by, by Christ, through Christ, through the triune, God's graciously giving himself to us as a sacrifice in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That we believe in God. And then again in verse 22, we read that we obey the truth through the Spirit. He gives himself to us so that we can obey the gospel, so that we can live in love, sincere and fervent love toward fellow Christians. Do you see? Do you see how graciously self-giving the triune God is just from 1 Peter 1? He gives himself fully for our salvation 
and for our sanctification so that we might know him, so that we might trust in him, so that we might worship and praise him. But you know, even, even that's not all there is to say about God as the triune God giving himself to us. One of the most amazing and mind-blowing passages in the Bible to me is John 14. John 14, verses 15 to 23. I invite you to turn with me there. John 14, verses 15 to 23. I'm not going to read all those verses, but if you just have your Bibles open, you can see them, see the words as I refer to them. And Jesus here in John 14 is, is speaking to his disciples just before his betrayal and arrest. Soon they would be without him. They would be without him in his human nature. And so he's preparing them for the future suffering, the future persecution also that they would have to face. And in verses 16 and 17, after calling them to prove their love to him by keeping his commandments, he says this in verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But ye know him, for he dwells in you and shall be in you. Amazing. Jesus promises his disciples and by extension all faithful Christians that the Father will give them the Spirit, not just in his regenerating work, but also in his, his indwelling work as their comforter to live in them forever. And as if that's not enough, in verse 21, he promises, he promises that all who love him and keep his commandments will be loved of his Father. And Christ himself will love them and manifest himself to them. But the most amazing verse to me in this passage is verse 23. Verse 23. After Judas asks him, not, not Iscariot, but the other Judas asks him, how, how is it that you will manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answers and says, said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode, our home with him. How stunning, how glorious, when we as believers, by the power of the Spirit, at work in our hearts and lives, are showing our love to God, living in thankful obedience to Him as the fruit of our faith and trust in Him, we have the triune God through the Spirit living in us, all three persons, by the Spirit. Uh, It's a mystery I cannot explain, but isn't it amazing? That somehow through the Spirit and dwelling in us, we also have the Father and the Son making their home in us. He graciously gives Himself to us in all His fullness so that we might have holy and happy and loving fellowship, communion with the triune God with all three persons. 
Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? Do you know, do you know something of that fellowship? That fellowship with the triune God in your own life. Who of us can say we know it enough? Once you know it, once you've experienced it, you want more. And that motivates you to live trusting in the triune God and it it spurs you on to greater love and obedience to Him. What a God. What a God. I said in the beginning of the sermon that one of the distinctive marks of the Christian faith is the phrase, in God triune we trust. But perhaps it's better, better to say it this way. One of the distinctive marks of Christians is that they trust not just in God, but in God triune. Are you marked? Are you marked? Just like American money is marked by that phrase. Are you marked by trust in the triune God? Are you trusting in him? There is no other God. There is no other God but Him. And there's no greater comfort than having Him. What a God He is. What a God to know. What a God to have. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Truly His glory, all praises, excels. Amen.